1: The dear Hank and John. Or as I like to think of it, dear Charlie, Jane, and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers and occasionally just two friends answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Charlie, Jane, do you know what the hardest part of having a party in outer space is?
2: I can think of many things that might be the hardest part, <laughs> like the drinks floating away. <laughs> I don't know. What is, the, what is the hardest part? You can't plan it. Ah... Uh... That was wow. I I'm like the the queen of dad jokes, so that was like next level. That was next <laughs> that is, level. Oh my god. No,
1: it, no, what you what you mean is that that one really deeply in a lot of ways was not good.
2: <laughs> it <laughs> it
1: was it wasn't my favorite, but we both write science fiction and so I wanted to have some something that is spacey and you've also you're going you're going well and truly to space in your next book, which I'm excited about. I, I've I've only read your Twitter thread about it, uh, but it sounds very up my alley. And I also just love how you think about, like, we're going to be operating inside of the tropes of science fiction, but we're going to do it our way.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I tried to have fun with it. Victory is greater than death. It's, you know, I'm trying to do, like, the whole kind of Guardians of the Galaxy, Star Wars, kind of like pew, pew, pew stuff. But <laughs> with, like, more of a YA feel and, like, just a little bit little bit different a little bit bringing it up to speed kind of bringing it up to the present
1: right bringing it up to, to to speed like with awareness of like uh how we currently understand the world a little bit better yeah I, I hope so that's that's the goal yeah it's funny it's funny when you're like I really like a space battle but I also like to recognize that violence is bad yeah and uh, and you're like so how do like where do i where do we come to like war is not is super not good and we should not glorify it but also can I get some space exploration? <laughs>
2: it's you know it's a balancing act it's a total balancing act yeah. and you know i actually feel a responsibility to kind of not glorify violence too much yeah. because i feel yeah, like absolutely you know when you kill someone that's actually really bad you know i've, I've been told yeah. i don't know no personal experience <laughs> here but you know i've heard from through the grapevine that, that murder is bad yeah and yeah so, it's one of the
1: it's one of the things that people tend to agree on
2: yeah so i tried not to just be like murder like, you know, yeah. I feel like in a lot of these movies and TV shows, people just like die right and left and you're supposed to be like, oh, well, right. that's taken care of, you know.
1: Yeah, you know, you can sort of like put a mask, put a stormtrooper mask on them and they don't count is Is the general idea. And I, I'm i a little bit guilty in my second book of throwing some, you know, just sort of faceless security guards into danger. But I don't think that I don't think that I killed any of them. Well, that's good. <laughs> but, yeah. But the fact that I can't remember is probably not great.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I actually really, this is something that kind of snuck up on me as I was writing is Greater Than Death. I have a scene halfway through the book, minor spoiler, where the main character does have to kill some people and she has a complete meltdown afterwards, which mm-hmm. I didn't see coming. I didn't, right. just like, okay, she has to kill these people. Right. And then I was like, nope, this, she's gonna, this is gonna really mess her up and she's gonna be feeling this and right so i ended up that being the second half of the book kind of in a way there was like her dealing with that mm-hmm. and it was like something that i didn't really expect
1: yeah my one of my favorite things about about writing fiction is how your characters can surprise you and you put them in situations and and you think you're gonna go one direction with it and they just like will not let you
2: they're like i'm not gonna go one direction i'm gonna go new kids on the block because i'm <laughs> old school
1: this, Sorry, I had to. I just had to. This is actually a problem I have with uh, my young characters who who operated inside of uh, a, you know, basically now uh, time frame rather than future space times, is uh, making them have taste in music that is accurate to them and not to me, where I'm like, oh, they no. shouldn't like Queen this much.
2: Oh, God. Yeah, I struggle with that. <laughs> I,
1: and so I had to like have people send me like like a bunch of playlists, and I was like, wow, Rico Nasty. All right, I'm signed up. Research is important. Research (laughs) is important. Do not. Oh, God.
2: Yeah. You wouldn't put something in your mouth if you hadn't researched it first. So don't put it on the page.
1: That's. Wow. I like that. Because you don't know when it's gonna be poison.
2: Exactly. You really don't. You know, you're out in the woods, you're like, these berries are colorful.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> There's so many, so many things that you'd like to write about, um, or that I'd like that I like to write about, and then I'm like, oh gosh, I should probably have somebody who knows about this read it. And they're like, Boy, Hank, you I'm really glad you reached out to me because everybody who knows about this would have gotten very mad at you for this. Story of my so. life.
2: You know, it's like, I mean, they're not people getting mad at me, but my friends being like, uh, you know, you might want to
1: actually know what you're talking about a little bit. God bless friends. Just a little. Yeah. You know, it's good to have those friends in your life. So is this your, this is definitely not your first book. How many novels have you written?
2: I've written like eight or nine, Okay, but this is my first young adult book. And it's like my fourth published book. I wrote like four books that never came out because Mm. publishing is hard.
1: Publishing is hard. Do you do you think about going back to them after having established a little bit of a career?
2: Yeah, I do. And actually one of them I kind of turned into like a, a novella, which is a really long short story or mm. a really short novel. I kind of cut it way down, mm. cut out all the bad parts. And that's right. now out in the world. But then the other three, I'm like, I'm going to come back to them at some point, I think, especially one of them. I really want to fix it up. But I've, it's like one of those things where like you come back to something that you did five ten years ago and you're like okay this really needs a lot of work right and it's almost gonna be as much work as writing a new thing Mm -hmm. like it's not gonna be just like a little bit of tweaks and nips and tucks here it's gonna be like a lot of work but i i love it so i'm gonna do that at some point Mm -hmm. it's it's in the queue i guess
1: yeah when i go back and i i sort of like look at the things that i the, the fiction that i wrote before i went through the process of like actually spending five years writing my first novel i really liked them and now i read them and i'm like oh like the reason no one would publish this is because it's bad.
2: I mean, I think when you come back to something that you wrote a long time ago and you're like, oh, this isn't as good as I remembered. It's because you've leveled up. It's actually a good thing. Right. It shows that you've gotten better and that your skills have improved. And you're, you know, I often say that nobody ever really gets better at writing. They get better at spotting their own bad ideas and their own bad habits, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so
2: yeah, like yeah. now I'm. I just, when I'm writing something, I'm like, nope. I'm not going to do that thing again, you know, (laughs) and like, oh, what if instead of doing this thing that I do that's terrible, I do this other thing that might not be terrible. And then, you know, yeah, I think that you just get better at kind of like catching yourself, making bad choices.
1: Do you want to answer some questions from
2: our listeners,
1: Charlie Jane? For sure. I'm excited. I'm very excited to hear. Your opinions on all of these things, this first question comes from Taylor, and this is—we get—and really, look, this may be a little bit of an excuse for me to—I want to I talk to more science fiction authors, and so if, if I hit a lot of science fiction-y questions, maybe that's why. Uh, this is from Taylor, who asks, Dear Hank and Charlie Jane, how do we know if we have an original idea? I want to start following my dream of becoming a writer, but how do I know if I have an original idea? Can I even determine if my storyline is free of accidental plagiarism? Is my idea fresh? Is it new? Is it worthy of being consumed? <laughs> Notebooks. What is this? I don't know what this means. Notebooks, not needles. Taylor. Oh, I see. Taylor, because it's Taylor. You uh, use needles when you're tailor. Okay. Um, uh, I... Sometimes I actively avoid books that I know are going to be similar to what I'm writing right now because I don't want to think I'm ripping someone off and feel that pressure. And I also don't want to actually do it where it's like, oh, that's nice. I should have that thing in my book. And then people are going to be like, well, this is very derivative, but almost never does it
2: matter. Do you agree with me? Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. The thing is what, you know, ideas are not the hard part. Ideas are the easy part there's a million ideas out there and most of them have something in common with other ideas that have already been used. Yes. And like, you know, when you think about the things that we tend to love in pop culture, like star Wars and like, you know, other stuff like that, it's usually just like a bunch of old ideas kind of swish together in a new way. Like mm. star Wars is literally just sure, like yeah. <laughs> some old samurai movies and Westerns and world war II movies kind of smushed together. Yeah. I think that, you know, what's, what's not original is the idea, but it's, your kind of personal take on it and what you put into it for yourself. Like, you know, writing is not really about, like, coming up with, like, pitches or, like, you know, cool concepts so much as just, like, Mm -hmm. you having a personal story that you want to tell that you're using this idea as a vessel to contain. You're pouring your... Your heart in a way. I don't want to sound sappy, but you're pouring your heart, your experience, yourself into this vessel and that's the that's the thing that you're producing. Yeah. That's worthy of being consumed. For some reason I hear that in like a
1: worthy of being consumed. <laughs> you know. <laughs> this planet is worthy of being consumed. <laughs> My mind, my mind secretions are worthy of consumption. <laughs> um, is a ve- is a very uh, science oh fiction God. author way of talking talking about how books work and stories work. So, do you think there is anything to? So, I've heard this that that what you're really trying to do is like when you're sort of like reading around your topic, you're not trying to like find ideas that you're going to steal, but you are trying to make sure that you that you aren't going over ground that is well trod, so well trod that it's almost like anybody sort of like, so in a genre specifically that it it would be a little like, oh, you know, that like, that was sort of what we were doing in this space 10 years ago. And now we aren't doing that anymore.
2: For sure. And I think that there's, that's, that's a minefield. I mean, there's like tropes that are kind of overused and like, You know, we we are blessed now to live in an era where people are super, super aware of tropes. Like, there's TV Tropes. That's, like, a website that catalogs every trope and where it's been used. And there's, like— Even some that are, like— It's
1: like, it it happened twice. And it's like, it's on TV Tropes now.
2: (laughs) It's insane. And, (laughs) like— On Twitter and like people will, I'll see people pitch their books by listing the tropes in the book. They'll be like, this book has like friends to enemies to lovers. This book has like, and they'll just list the tropes for you. So you know what the tropes are (laughs) before you even read it. And, you know, I think that's awesome. I've done a little bit of that myself. I think that, you know, this is why you show your work to people. This is why you share your work with people. This is why you have like Mm -hmm. a writing group and a community who you can kind of like talk to and kind of like... You're you're never going to do your best work if you're kind of sitting in a bubble by yourself. I think you need to like you have need to be in communication with other human beings in order to really produce work that's going to be meaningful.
1: Yes, that's absolutely true. And and also like we can't as individuals be aware of of, of as much stuff as like six individuals can. Mm-hmm. Like six people know maybe not six times as much as one person, but like five <laughs> times as much. And you know, I I think being familiar it's funny, you know, like I there there's work that I find really rewarding right now that turns a lot that that like sort of like takes the well-trod ground and does it yeah in a totally different way. And you you can tell that these people who have read a lot of science fiction, like Martha Wells and the Murderbot books, where you're like, "Okay, Like you, you, like there's been a lot of murder bots in science fiction and you were like, I'm going to do this in a deeply different way where the murder bot likes to watch TV and is very anxious.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: But I don't think that that's necessary. I think that that's kind of candy for people who are really into the genre. But there's also lots of people who are sort of like there's lots of genre work that doesn't need to turn tropes on its head and, and that can sort of like mash things together that are old ideas, but like, if you put two ideas together, they could, two old ideas together, they can suddenly become quite new.
2: Yeah. And the the final thing I would say is, you know, don't overly obsess about like producing a product that is going to be, you know, in the marketplace that people are going to either buy or not buy or that people, like, Mm -hmm. especially if you're starting out and, you know, it took me a long time to get published and I was trying to get published the whole time and I'm glad I kept trying to trying because that was a good experience. That was good learning experience. But, you know, don't forget to have fun and just create something that's meaningful to you Mm -hmm. uh, rather than just being obsessed with like some marketplace that's going to judge your work because, you know, by the time anything you write sees the public, it will have gone through many, 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 many layers of editing and, and, you know, people responding to it and submissions and all this stuff. And so you will, there will be plenty between you and that. Yeah. And in the meantime, if you're not having fun now, it's none of it's going to matter.
1: Yeah. And, and the process of writing very, you you learn a great deal even in just doing the, the, the project e- even if it's not learning about how to write, you know even if it's learning about yourself and learning about how you imagine other people, learning about other people like doing that kind of you know getting inside of the heads that that empathy work that is so necessary in fiction is super rewarding even if it even if it's not a thing that becomes another thing. Okay, here's another question. It's from Rebecca who asks, Dear Hank and Charlie Jane, are there any serious efforts to build colonies or human settlements on asteroids? I know NASA has goals to set up colonies on the moon and Mars. Well, I mean, not bad. Goals, I guess. <laughs> goals. Has NASA or another space agency uh, explored the idea of putting humans on asteroids? What kind of challenges would they face? I'm guessing there's no atmosphere there, so it seems like that would be a pretty big hurdle. My favorite polyhedron is Dodeca, Rebecca
2: Wow Cute. that was a great sign off I love that
1: Oh my god Yeah they work hard they work hard on the sign offs They know that we examine <laughs> and we choose based on good sign offs I'm I'm glad she didn't go with Triskidecka
2: cuz I'm no, I'm yeah. like superstitious
1: <laughs> Yeah so I think I think on the I think the surface of asteroids will be a very bad place to live I, I, But I think that living in inside asteroids yeah. is totally doable.
2: I think you could possibly live inside an asteroid. I'm not sure. Like, you wouldn't have much gravity. There might not be any gravity to speak of.
1: This is the thing. Kim Stanley Robinson solved this problem in 2312 by hollowing out an asteroid in a like a cylinder, and then spinning it up oh, to make a giant ring wow. ring station, which I like a lot. I like that version because it solves a lot of problems that we have. Like Earth is not a great place, if you think about it. I like Earth long enough. I'm, I'm a like big the fan. Sun. Okay, I'm sorry. Let me all take that. Let me r- rescind my comment. This is a great point. Best planet by far. Uh, do do want to protect? But Best planet I've ever lived on. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, definitely. So I think I think that uh, Earth is probably a better planet than any, literally any other planet in the, the galaxy for us because it's like, well, it's what we evolved for. But it's got a big, deadly uh, radiation laser up in the sky all the time. The weather does all kinds of crazy stuff. You don't know what it's going to do. You can't really, like, predict it. And also, like, climate can totally change. Uh, we're not really in control of that. It's got, like, all kinds of, like, the Earth can just, like, suddenly, like, start shaking and buildings can fall down. Like So, like, look, on an average day, Earth, great, but things can go wrong. I think that like if you lived inside an asteroid, you could control a lot of these things and people who lived inside the asteroid would be like, could you believe that those people like just existed with that cancer machine up in the sky that just mutated their cells all the time? This is this is how I feel.
2: I don't know. I think if you lived inside an asteroid, you'd be constantly worried about hitting other asteroids and like comets going by and, you know. solar fluctuations right. you'd still be close to the sun you still would have to be somewhere in the vicinity of the sun you'd be in the asteroid battle I guess. i guess yeah you know you'd be worried about the oort cloud i don't even know yeah the oort cloud just sounds scary to me because it's got two o's in it i don't know <laughs> i definitely could see some advantages to living inside an asteroid i haven't read that particular kim stanley robinson book yet i heard it's great but i can definitely see some advantages to living inside an asteroid because of you know being protected by all that rock around you. And you could probably, I mean, mostly what I hear people talk about is mining asteroids, right? And like, you know, that's what they're doing in The Expanse. They're basically just like mining these asteroids and like living on moons and things to like, get at these asteroids and and mm-hmm. strip all the metals and minerals and things out of them but i think mostly when people talk about asteroids they talk about using them as just like raw materials to build our eventual space empire and stuff right i think that you know definitely like i agree with you living on an asteroid would would be bad you know would be uncomfortable
1: uh, yeah very challenging most of them yeah you could literally accidentally jump off of right which you don't want
2: I suspect living inside an asteroid would be very very hard it would be like every aspect of your life would have to be just like keeping this thing that's the thing stable and keeping it going yes, yes. you would but, never be able to just like chill uh-huh. inside an asteroid
1: yeah I mean you you could but somebody out there isn't chilling yeah and the moment that they uh, make a mistake no one is chilling
2: like the spin slows down a little and everybody starts floating and you're just like oh shoot we gotta get the spin going again everybody push <laughs> get those hamsters running <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works. I'm assuming in Kim Stanley Robinson's book, they're like asteroid hamsters.
1: Yeah, there's a bunch of hamsters, but the hamsters breathe a lot, so then you have to scrub all their carbon dioxide out, which is not easy. It's just a—it's a great deal. See,
2: of work. it's a complicated system. Mm-hmm. What I, I guess the point I'm making is your critique of Earth is that it's a complicated system. But I think any place that people are living is going to be a complicated system. Yeah. And if it's a complicated system we built, you're going to have all the problems that come with us building stuff, which is that we are like, well. That looks like the right kind of screw. I don't have an Allen wrench, but I have like a quarter and like, I don't know. I'm just going to, that's good right. enough. It's in, it's far <laughs> enough in,
1: you know? Somebody used meters when they, when they were supposed to use feet and suddenly there's just a big hole. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. humans. Yeah. Humans. Whereas this thing takes care of itself as long as we don't mess with it too much. Which we're not messing with it at all. We're just totally leaving it alone. Yeah.
0: It's, it's Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> no big problems. Where do uh, your people in Victory is Greater Than Death live in space?
2: I mean, they basically live on a starship for pretty much most of the okay. book. They're like, it's like very Star trek very kind of like Guardians of the Galaxy. They're just like zipping around in this starship, you know, fighting bad guys and saving the galaxy. And, uh, you know, it's like <laughs> okay. that kind of book.
1: Actually, I have a question that I wanted to ask because uh, th- that, is, that is in this vein. It's from Selma who asks Dear Hank and Charlie Jane. There are two categories of books about space. One, space books for small kids, and two, space books for adults. Why aren't there any space books for teenagers? I need more space oh books gosh. for teenagers. Pumpkins and Planet Selma. Well, um first I got of all some good news. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I don't know. Yeah. First of all, there are space books for teenagers. Um and we'll talk about some of them. But second, most importantly, Charlie Jane, can you tell me like what 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 is different about writing a space book for young adults than writing a space book for adults?
2: I think that, you know, in general, when you're writing for young adults, you want to keep the pace really fast. You don't want to have, like, a hundred pages of, like, discussing, like, orbital mechanics and delta V and, like, you know, the physics of, Mm -hmm. you know, how you transverse the lightspeed barrier and, you know, mm-hmm. you don't want to have like pages and pages and pages of jargon and people just like, which I hate writing that stuff anyway, most of the time, I don't really like to write hundreds of pages of people talking about like jargon to each other. Like I know I've read, I've read books like that and I know people love those sorts of books, but that's not really me uh-huh. That's not as a writer. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's actually kind of liberating. I think that when you're writing for teens, you have to keep it really personal and emotional. And the thing about being in space is you don't really survive in space on your own for very long. You need a crew around you. You need a starship. You need people who are going to keep the thing flying and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so for a big starship, you're just going to be a big crew. And the teenagers are not necessarily just going to be like doing their own thing all the time. They're going to be helping to keep the ship flying. And so keeping it really personal, keeping it focused on the kids and having the kids drive the story Mm -hmm. is a little bit of a challenge in that kind of setting. And it's definitely not a, it's a challenge that you can get past, but it is a challenge. And, you know, I think that there's ways around it. You know, a lot of space books for teens I've seen will start out with the the teenager stealing a spaceship and going off on their own, and that's, like, how it starts. And mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to do the more Star Trek thing so there are actual adults on this spaceship with the kids, but <laughs> but yeah. the kids are still getting to do their own thing and have adventures and kind of... They, they, become, they very quickly become very important in keeping the spaceship going because there's kind of only a skeleton crew and they need all the help they can get and blah, blah, blah.
1: Blah, (laughs) blah. Yeah. What are some other, what are some other space books for, for teens that you know of?
2: I mean, the classic one is obviously Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, who is a person yeah. who has expressed some very upsetting views. And yeah. I don't really know if if people are wanting to read him anymore. Um, there's also one that I read recently that I really loved. Actually, a couple that I read recently that I really loved. Once in Future by Amy Rose Capetta and Corey McCarthy, which is like King Arthur in space in the future mm. with like evil corporations and dragons in space. And like, it's yeah, it's got a lot of fantasy elements, but it also does have the spaceships and space battles and like zooming around the galaxy. And I loved that book. I thought it was so fun. And so so just such a lovely, fun ride. Also, um, I would say, you know, Illuminate by Jay Kristoff and Amy Kaufman. Mm-hmm. And also, they also just wrote Aurora Rising, which is another duology, I think. Uh, So there are actually space books for teens that are actually very popular. And uh, it's like, it's one of those things, it's like a myth that like there are no space books for teens, but they actually are a fair number, including obviously my victory is greater than death. But I, you know, I was a little scared to get into it because there was that myth out there that this isn't a thing that exists. Right. And I I think, you know, not to get on my soapbox, but we want kids to be excited about space and space exploration and science and, Mm -hmm. you know exploring the cosmos, because they're the ones who are going to have to do it, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I. there's plenty of space that I read when I was a teen. Like, I read Dune as a teen, and it was it felt very much to me like a book that, you know, was designed to be appealing to young men, specifically. I don't know if that... Dune, reading it as, an, as, a, as like, sort of a 40-year-old, I, I read it maybe five years ago uh, again, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is, like, this is really guy it's really sort of like focused on uh patriarchs and traditional like you know if you're writing it in the 60s like it's based on like how how society was structured which which was a bit of a turnoff but still a really beautiful book I read a book called losers in space good title 10 15 years ago and uh it's so it's it's a basically it's basically about a bunch of kids who want to become social media stars. So it's like got a little bit of a, it's got a little bit like, and this it was even before like social media stardom was, was a thing. It was when it was written. And so uh, it's very cool to sort of like see it in some ways, predict like what people will do to get attention. And when, especially when they're young and then a little bit of uh, like we have to rely on each other actually now because they're, they're, we've created an actual real problem for ourselves and we have to be a, a team and get through this Um even though we're not entirely sure if everybody's on the same side as each other. And maybe some people are worse than you think. Nice. So I, I I loved that. It was very weird. And I feel like I've never heard any met anyone else who's ever read it. And that, the other thing is, well, maybe we should save this because there's another question about genre. Here's a question from Cheyenne who's, who says, Dear Hank and Charlie Jane, I work in a library. And before that, I worked in a bookstore. Something has always sat in my head that nobody seems to have a simple answer for and always seems... Pretty pressing. At what point does contemporary fiction become historical fiction? At what point does historical fiction graduate to become a classic? I have never once been to Wyoming Cheyenne. Wow. Genres are fake. Genres are
2: fake. I mean, you know, genres are real if you want them to be, but they're also fake. And, you know, wow. I mean, I don't think contemporary fiction ever becomes historical fiction. Well, yes, yes. Because historical fiction is specifically someone writing about the past and if you're writing about the present and then the present you were writing about becomes the past, it's still not the same thing. It's still, you know, it's just dated. Right. It's dated contemporary fiction. Yeah. And I feel like there's something different in, like, when you're in 2021 writing about, you know, 1890 or 1990 mm-hmm. or whatever, you are writing about a time that is distant from you and you were – consciously trying to bring it to the reader and con- and conjure it up as like, this is a historical setting. And like, things were different in 1990. We didn't have all the things that we take for granted today. It was a it was a hard, mm-hmm. terrible time. We had to like watch television as it was broadcast. It was like a whole thing <laughs> and other stuff. There was other stuff, but well, that was the main thing that yeah. was different. And, uh, you know, I think that if you're writing about the time that you're living in, you don't have the assumption that you're kind of conjuring up a historical time for the reader you're just like here's this is now and you know also i've noticed that nobody writes contemporary fiction lately like it just doesn't exist that's
1: not true because people
2: don't want to write about this time we're living through i don't know i just the last several like literary kind of like Mm -hmm. mainstream novels i've read have all been set in the late 20th century right
1: i have i have seen this yeah little fires everywhere was like the big thing and and that yeah. was was late late 20th. Yeah, and and it's very it's very weird to read these books about like the times when I was like it's about grown-ups who were grown-ups when I was a kid. Like those books always they're the ones that make me the most oh, yeah. uncomfortable where I'm like, "Oh god, all the grown-ups when I was a kid were grown-ups." Which I like I know my parents are grown-ups now, but back then they weren't people and none of my friends' parents were people. They were just grown-ups they weren't like living lives and making mistakes they were yeah anyway um yeah so that that does that does feel like a thing but there are definitely people who are writing about now though i think writing about right now is very hard and i've Ooh, i've
2: that's going to be so hard yeah
1: I've, I've i've i i in my opinion write out i'm like no way would i write about right now i'm uh, i'm going to write about 200 years from now if I write another fiction book.
2: I think 20 years from now, if I'm lucky enough to still be writing books 20 years from now, I might yeah. write about now. Like I might write a book set in 2020 or 2021. Right. In 2040, you know? Because by then I'll have some perspective. But when we know what any of it means. Yeah, exactly. What do you have some Yeah. I mean, I had to write a new short story recently for something and I was like, I had like a throwaway line where I was like, yep, this was before we spent all our time indoors. And like, you know, that was like what I, th- yeah. I that was what I threw in there just because I was like, it was a person talking about their life and i was like okay i'm just gonna mm-hmm. sh- just kind of scoot that in there but i i don't know i i feel like it would be really hard but I, I also think books in terms of books becoming a classic that is a thing that is like kind of impossible to control and kind of oh sure usually, actually very unlikely like you know, when you when you look at the number, like, you might look at, like, oh, look at all these books that are classics. There's, like, hundreds of them. But that's, like, 0.00001% <laughs> oh, yeah. of books that were even popular. Mm-hmm. Like, and most books that are, like, beloved and, like, best-selling and, like, embraced and, like, carried around, like, little talismans by people today are, are going to be forgotten in 20 years. It's just the way it is.
1: Oh, yeah. And it's sad, but it's life. Yeah. John, John and I once did—we did this exercise where we, we were, like, what's— we wanted to see if we could do a, a, an idea for a podcast, which is a good idea for a podcast, except for some things. And the idea was let's read the books once a year. We'll read a book that is the that was the top selling book exactly a hundred years ago. Oh, and and so like bestseller lists existed back then, and you read and so like we picked it up, and the first one was like a garbage monstrosity of racism. It was, like, just straight, like, everything Shocked. about it was, like, it, it, it wasn't, like, there were there was racism in it. It was, like, it was racism. <laughs> like it, it, that's all. It, that's the whole story. But like so I, could, I feel like we couldn't have taken it on as, like, two white guys. But the bigger problem was it wasn't that good of a read. Like, it wasn't that interesting because, like, tastes have changed dramatically. And, like, it was the biggest book in America, and nobody has ever heard of
2: it. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, you talk about, I think even you talk about books that were big in the, you know, 20, 30 years ago. People will be like, yeah. the what now? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the books that become classics are often the ones that just kind of get slowly discovered over time and passed around and, you know, the hype has died down. It's almost like
1: we require that of them. Like there has to be a better story than it was really popular. Like, we want more to it than that we want there to be a deep story about like it was it was underground and then the author was tortured and died or something and and then uh, and I don't mean like factually tortured just okay because like I was like life. you know
2: this is getting really dark. <laughs>
1: Uh, it, it, you know, because I think that we want a story about our stories to some extent, but, and I also, like, I'm disappointed in some of the books that are classics, to be honest with
2: you. Oh gosh. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, I think we're right at the, the point where a lot of books that have been held up as classics are going to start just fading away. Yeah. Like Catcher in the Rye, like Catcher in the Rye is going to just fade gently away.
1: Yeah. Lord of the Flies Oof. can can go off a cliff, please.
2: Oh gosh. Yeah.
1: I can't believe they made me read that.
2: Yeah, no, so many books they made me read in school now. I'm just like, nobody should ever read this again. Once a lot of your fans get past a certain age or get past, you know, are no longer around, Mm -hmm. it just gently fades away. I do think that books that become classics are often the books that are kind of weird. Like, because, you know, they were maybe too weird for people at the time, but then people afterwards are like, whoa, this book is really weird. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, what the heck? This book is just, what's going on?
1: Let's make a bunch of high school kids read this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Yeah, pretty much. God.
1: Charlie Jane, I have another question. It's from Duncan who asks, Dear Hank and Charlie Jane, I'm an aspiring writer, but I mostly just write very short stories about my D&D characters and their backstory. I really want to be able to make more substantial and proper fiction rather than one to three page short stories. Part of my problem is that I find myself struggling to sit down and actually write what I have in my mind. Any advice would be very appreciated. Panic and Pumpkins. Dunk can't. No, Duncan, Duncan.
2: Duncan. Dunn absolutely can. And, you know, I bet those one to three page short stories about your D&D characters are awesome. Yeah. And like the backstory, I love backstory. Me I feel too. like backstory gets a bad rap, Oh god. but yeah. I love that. And like, you know, the thing is that there's a point at which backstory becomes front story or whatever we call it, the, 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 <laughs> the front story. part of the story. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like you're kind of work, probably working your way up to finding that you're just like getting in that direction Mm -hmm. and you know thinking about like if the backstory is interesting then it's going to make people want to do things like in the present it's like you know that's what i love about backstory is that if if my parents were like murdered by like murder hornets or you know possibly like (laughs) you know murder chinchillas i don't know murder some kind of murder (laughs) creatures let's say murder chinchillas murder chinchillas killed Uh my parents and so good you know and so i've just what does that make you do in the present? Does it make you want to wipe out all the murder chinchillas? Does it make you want to protect everybody else's families from the murder chinchillas? Right. Do you want to just wear like all clothes made out of murder chinchilla fur? (laughs) This is getting a little dark. I don't know.
1: It's so soft. But
2: I feel like, I feel like you're just, you're stretching your creative muscles and that's really awesome and exciting. Um, And as for the part of like, you don't feel like sitting down and writing, don't sit down and write. Don't sit down. You know what I do? I will sometimes, and I, Hate how I can't even imagine how this looks to other people, and I don't care because I'm a I'm a terrible person. But I will go. I will just walk around town. I'll walk around the city with my phone out, and I'll just talk into my phone wow, sometimes. That's awesome. And I'll just like I'll just I'll just have like a blank email, and I'll send an email to myself with like a, just a giant wall of like me talking, and like then I'll, later I'll sit down and I'll be like, okay, there's some stuff in here that I can smush together. Like I I wrote like a whole essay like that the other day. So, you know,
1: that's awesome. Um, I have never I've never I've never even thought to try and write linearly like that um, in voice because of how much of a mess I tend to be on the page. Um, But I think that writing backstory is is a thing that has propelled me. Because if I know more about the character, I know more about the decisions they're going to make. I know more about what positions I can put them in that is going to be really interesting and hard for them or empowering for them or whatever I, like I want it to be when I know more about that character. And and so, like, writing – I did this with with all of my characters. I would, like, write a, um, a thing that happened to them when they were younger that I wasn't going to put in the book. It's just, like, something. It's a short story that's just for me that's just about this character – um and I actually did end up putting one of them in the book because i'm i liked it too much and john my my very successful novelist brother gave me two pieces of advice when he read the book the first time and one of them was you should take that out and i didn't <laughs> <laughs> i left it in and i i don't know if this is okay to say but my favorite part of D is writing the backstory for my character like Straight up. It's me alone being like, this person's going to have this drama, and it's going to have this adventure in their past, and their father was this kind of profession, and just to know all that stuff. And uh, and uh then I like sit down to play D&D and I'm like, this is fun, but not as fun <laughs> as writing that backstory was.
2: I just, it makes the characters richer and yeah. having all that backstory and like you just know them yeah. in a different way. Like, you know, I always say if somebody has never changed in the past that they can't change in the present. Mm. Like you have to show how this person has been changing yeah. so you can keep seeing them change. And like, yeah. you know, that. I think if you just sit with those backstories that you've been writing, uh, Duncan, uh, <laughs> that you will, you will find that, you know, yeah. there are questions forming in your mind about, like, how is this person going to keep moving forward and changing? And how are they going to be different from this yeah. the next time we see them or whatever?
1: I also think for any DMs out there, one of my favorite things that a DM ever did was, like, I'm going to have each of you have a thing that I want you to bring up at some point during the campaign. And I want you to write it down beforehand. It just like one attribute of your character that no one else knows about. It's a secret that your character has and you have to reveal it at some point in the campaign. And I was like, Oh, that's freaking great.
2: That's awesome. I I love it. Yeah.
1: Anyway, this reminds me, Charlie Jane, that this podcast, one of our sponsors, very weird coincidence, is Murder Chinchillas. (laughs) They feel as if they've gotten a bad rap, so they're buying podcast advertisements now. They do not want their skin to be turned into coats. And they promise to not murder anymore, though I'm not sure if I everyone trust them.
2: I feel like they should change their name if they're really serious about not murdering anymore. Like, maybe they should just, like, why are they so attached to being called murder chinchillas? Maybe consider a rebranding. Like, hire, hire a branding consultant, you know, who I right. picture as being yeah. some kind of badger. With, like, a little, like, waistcoat. Badgers are the best
1: branding consultants.
2: (laughs) As an amazing coincidence, this podcast is also brought to you by asteroid hamsters. You know, they're (laughs) reeling really really fast, and they're doing it for us. They're keeping our gravity going. They're running on their little treadmill. And, you know, send them pellets. Send them some freaking pellets so you don't float away, okay? People, come on. They can't stop.
1: I'm so happy that we're getting so much sponsorship from rodents these days. Like, I didn't... we must have gotten on somebody's radar. It's very good news for the podcast. This podcast is also brought to you by Weird Books. Weird Books. They're just a little bit too much right now, but in the future, they might be classic. People turning into roaches. It's a thing.
2: (laughs) And our final sponsor for this episode is Brain Secretions Worthy of Consumption, which, you know, I feel like... They should be at your neighborhood grocery store. Like, there should just be, like, a rack of brain secretions Ugh. worthy of consumption. And it should be just, like, you drink it and you you just get, like, thoughts and ideas. Like, That's the future, my friend. If, if I could bottle that, that'd be so much better than writing books. If I could just, like, squeeze my brain and, like, put it in bottles and put it in grocery stores. I feel like that would be the, the way to go, for sure.
1: I worry what would come out the, under, <laughs> the other end of that process. I need yeah, the filter.
2: I think you, you definitely need some kind <laughs> of filtration system. Like, all the gunk just goes into your, like... It goes into your grout. Mm. It just turns into grout. Good.
0: So listen, your toilet is massively gross. Like, it's grosser than you think. In fact, bacteria and viruses can hang around in the toilet bowl even after multiple flushes. And I recently found the easiest way to clean my toilet. Blue Land Sustainable Toilet Cleaner Tablets. Just drop, watch it fizz, brush, and flush. It is truly that simple. No more scrubbing for hours. Plus, the tablets are plastic-free. Blueland is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and for the planet, with the same powerful clean that you're used to. Blueland products are effective and affordable, and their toilet tablets are proven to work on a wide range of toilet stains, including rust, mineral deposits, limescale, and hard water. And you can even get more savings by buying refills in bulk or setting up a subscription. Blueland has a special offer for our listeners. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss this blueland.com slash DearHank for 15% off. That's blueland.com slash DearHank to get 15% off.
1: Okay. I think this is a really cute question. It's from Kyle. And maybe are going to be our last question because I, I do want to tell you some news from Mars. Kyle asks, Dear Charlie, Jane, and Hank, what unnecessary little tasks like putting ice in your water or making your bed do you do to make your life just a little bit more enjoyable? No sign-off. I just, just, Kyle says, no sign-off, just leave an uncomfortably long silence here. Kyle, (laughs) I can't do it. I'm incapable of doing that. If you're listening to this, you
2: could just hit the pause button and have as long of an uncomfortable silence as you want. Perfect.
1: So I have a thing. I have a thing that I do, that I only do for my own personal comfort just to make my life a little better. And I probably have several, but one I have is in the mornings, I have a special robe Mm. that I wear. It's like a big blanket. It's like it weighs like 13 pounds. It was a, a, it was swag from a YouTube event for some reason. And I will put on this stupid giant blanket robe and I will walk around my house like a like the Michelin man. And then <laughs> and then when the morning is over, when like morning time has ended and I'm going to come out to my office, I take off my robe and I put it on a big wooden hanger and I put it back onto the And the, I only do this during the winter when it's cold in my house. I put it back on the thing. And uh, it's a a nice sort of like Mr. Rogers-esque ritual. I've always loved that about Mr. Rogers where it's like, here's my transitionary time. I'm going to take off my coat and put on my sweater and change my shoes. And I'm like, yes, yes, ritual. Bring me ritual.
2: I feel like the thing that's been bringing me comfort, which I actually for a while was like, why am I doing this? Is like organizing my books. Mm. And like, I actually was talking to my partner, Lee recently where I was like, God, instead of getting any writing done or answering the hundreds of emails that I'm supposed to be answering, all I did for the last three hours is just like rearrange the books on my bookshelves Mm -hmm. because I was like, these books should be friends with each other. And I want to make sure all the authors, all the books by this author are in the same place. And Uh okay, these books belong. And like, just like, just organizing the books. And like, I was like, this is a really, this is a huge waste of time. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, it's making me feel really happy and calm and like just making me feel... Like everything's gonna be okay, kind of. Oh
1: man, yeah. I haven't done that in a long time, and I really need to because it is lovely. It's, it's just a really, yeah. It's
2: like gardening, except you don't have to get dirty or as dirty because some of the books get dusty. But you don't have to get as dirty. You don't have to like, you know, be in nature, which you know, yuck. But also, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. I, I love nature.
1: There's a, there's a thing of to it that it's like once I'm done, I'm done with gardening. You're never done.
2: You're never done. Oh, my God. It's true. And,
1: and also, like, you can mess up and kill something, which v- almost never happens when you're reorganizing a bookshelf.
2: You, you there are you do occasionally run into the book that is actually disintegrating and you didn't know it until you pulled it off the shelf. And then you're like, oh, I'm holding, like, just a pile of flakes. <laughs> this is, <laughs> like, this, this book that this, I've loved and cherished is, book. like, just a flake <laughs> pile now. And it's like, that's yeah. upsetting. But uh, but, you know, that was going to happen at some point. Yeah. Like you can't you didn't kill the book. You just kind of found its corpse.
1: <laughs> yeah. I've, I, what I need to do is take off all the books I haven't read. Oh. I'm like, what are you doing here? What am I even what are you why are you still here? But maybe not. Well, this is a thing. I think I'll read that someday but it's not even on my pile and my pile is very tall. I have I have hundreds of books that I'm going to get to one of these days. And like, you know. Yeah.
2: Some of them I will some of them I will read the first 10 pages and then be like, "Okay, now I feel like I've given this a shot and I'm getting rid of it." Right. But I feel I f- I feel guiltier about getting rid of unread books than read books.
1: Yeah. Oh, let's go on. I I have a little bit of Mars news that I want to share uh, this week. I don't think Charlie Jane has brought anything to do with AFC Wimbledon. I can look up the League One table real quick since it's been a a couple weeks since John's been here. He's working his butt off on the Anthropocene Reviewed book. AFC Wimbledon is now not in last place anymore. They're in 21st. They had a win. They won a game. It's their first win in an awful long time. Yay. And who was it against? Who knows? (laughs) Was it Bristol Rovers, the one team that's worse than them? It was not. Oh, that's great news. AFC Wimbledon won against uh, Northampton Town, who are also quite bad. But Go AFC Wimbledon! <laughs> I believe in you. I, we believe in you. They're one spot out of the relegation zone now, so it is possible that they can do it. In the news from Mars, uh, there is a new theory about where all the water on Mars has gone. So traditionally the theory has been that it evaporated into water vapor and then that sort of floated up into the upper atmosphere and then through various interactions with the sun's rays it gets knocked off the planet and uh, out into the further reaches of the solar system. But there is some new data that has been gathered by various missions to study how much water has uh, been on Mars over time. So they were doing this by looking uh, at the composition of the planet's atmosphere and crust the particularly the ratio of deuterium to hydrogen because deuterium is just hydrogen but heavier hydrogen is just one electron and one atom usually but sometimes it has a neutron and then it's heavy and that will uh escape at different rates than regular hydrogen and so you can sort of like because it's because like regular hydrogen is lighter it will escape more quickly and so you can tell by this ratio how much of Mars's water leaves every year? Basically, I'm simplifying things. We have a SciShow episode about it if you want to watch the whole explanation. As the team presented at the 52nd Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, the different measurements they made, both past and present, could not be explained entirely by water escaping from Mars's atmosphere. So they have proposed that in addition to atmosphere escape, there's also water trapped in the minerals of Mars's crust. This also happens on Earth, by the way. There's tons of water trapped in, like, clays and hydrated s- salts and stuff. Um, so they think that it it might be down there, not as, like, big like lakes, like aquifers, but just sort of trapped between little bits of stuff in the crust. And that could account from anywhere between 30% to 99% of Mars's water, which is a very wide range, Ooh. but they don't have... Enough data to be more specific than that, but they know for sure that it is a pretty big hunk. Um, so that's very cool and interesting. Now, that isn't going to be water we can just like suck out of the ground and drink.
2: I was going to say, that's going to be a really hard to get at. Yes. You know? I like the aquifers a lot better.
1: And there are, does look like there are a couple of aquifer like things on Mars. They're probably very, very salty and they're very deep down, so not something that we could easily drill to. By far, the Way that we're going to get water on Mars is surface ice, which there is actually a fair amount of. Um, You just have to know where to look and uh, be in the right place. So, I mean, good news, there's good, but mostly interesting news. Charlie Jane, thank you so much for joining me and talking all about books and science and science fiction. It was great. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. I can't I, cannot, I can't wait for your new book. I have enjoyed your work in the past, and so I'm excited to read more of it. Yay, thank you. And congratulations.
2: Victory is greater than death.
1: When does it come out?
2: April 13th.
1: Nice. So you have to wait a little bit until after this podcast comes out, but you can pre-order it wherever books are available for pre-order. And as I could say, as an author, pre-orders are really, really Useful. <laughs> they are so important. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarty. The music you're hearing now, and at the beginning of the podcast, is by the great Gunnarola, And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, be awesome. awesome.